0: On this second Sunday of this Lenten season, our gospel text comes from the 13th chapter of Luke, verses 31 through 35. I'd invite you, if you're with us this morning, and Abel, if you would stand with me as we honor the Lord's word together, Matthew 13, verses 31 through 35. At that time, some Pharisees approached Jesus and said, go, get away from here, because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, look, I'm throwing out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will complete my work. However, it's necessary for me to travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. How often I have wanted to gather your people. Just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you didn't want that. Look, your house is abandoned. I tell you, you won't see me until the time comes when you say blessings on the one who comes in the Lord's name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you are a sports fan like me, um, this is one of the best weeks of the year. Amen. I mean, I feel good today, but I can feel some sickness coming on that's going to hit, I think, Thursday, probably into Friday. I may have to take a sick day on Thursday uh, to watch the march madness to watch the ncaas and those of you who are boise state fans congratulations on the conference championship and uh on being invited to the big dance um i think part of the reason those of us who love this week and by the way i know that one of the first rules of preaching is the preacher should never be the hero in their own story however (laughs) however I am the reigning Nampa College Church office bracket champion. I I have to give up the trophy for just a couple of weeks until winning it again. But uh, but I think the the thing that most of us love uh, about the next few weeks and, and the NCAA basketball tournament is just how often those kind of Cinderella teams come from out of nowhere and knock off a big program. And there's just something really beautiful and powerful about that. And my guess is that sometime during these next two or three weeks of the tournament, I'll decide to watch for the hundredth time, probably my favorite sports movie of all time, the movie Hoosiers. I know I reference it about once a year, Um, but I love this story, a little bit based in truth, but mostly based in fiction. Uh, the story about a, a kind of rejected college coach, a guy named Norman Dale, who gets invited by his friend who's the principal at a tiny little school in Hickory, Indiana, to come and to take over this sort of ragtag, rag-tag team and to try to coach them. Um, it, it's amazing story. You know, he goes to Indiana where basketball is really more of a religion than a sport, and And the first practice, a a dad is coaching them and he's saying to them, shoot the ball, shoot the ball, further out, even, you know, shoot the ball. That's all they're doing is just kind of shooting. And and so then he shows up and he says, "Uh, put the balls uh, to the side. We're not going to shoot for a while. Grab some chairs. And so they start working on some defensive drills and they start dribbling and passing and doing all these things. And they spend the whole first practice and the whole first week of practice not shooting at all, but doing all the other aspects of the game probably my favorite scene in the film although it's really uncomfortable to watch is the first game of the season when the hickory team goes and plays in their opening game and before the game starts coach dale says to them so here's what we've been working on and here's what i want you to do here's the rules for the game tonight you have to pass the ball at least four times before somebody takes a shot did you get that you have to pass the ball at least four times. How many times? Four times, right? And so then they go out on the court and it doesn't work very well for them. It's, they are not used to passing the ball four times. And so the ball keeps getting stolen and the other team makes a fast break. And, and you can see their uncomfortableness with it. Pretty soon the fans, even the parents, start to turn on them a little bit and they're yelling at the coach. What are you doing, coach? Get them to shoot the ball, right? And he keeps saying to them, no, come on, pass the ball four times. And you can just see, you can feel the tension in these poor players as they're losing the game. And the coach is telling them, pass the ball four times. And their parents are yelling at them to shoot the ball. And so finally, this one player, you can just see the tension in him. He's dribbling down the court and he has an open shot and he just takes it and he makes it. And the fans all cheer and the parents go, yeah, that's right, that's right. You know, and you see the disappointment on the coach's face sure enough, the next time down the court, he does it again, he dribbles, he shoots, and he makes it again, and everybody cheers, and the coach takes him out of the game. Makes him sit all the way down at the end of the bench. One of my favorite moments is they're losing the game, but finally one of the players fouls out, and they're down to four players. And so the kid who's been at the bench this whole time thinks, well, finally, I'll get back into the game. And coach goes, where are you going? This is my team, right? (sighs) Yeah. There's a sense in which this season that we are participating in, and perhaps at some level, hopefully it's every week, but certainly during the Lenten season in particular, we come and we are gathered together to be reminded of the kind of life our ultimate coach is inviting us into, a way that is cruciformed, as we talked about last week, A kind of life that is shaped by the cross again and again by the self-giving love, the sacrificial grace and mercy that we see demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we come not just to celebrate that or to think about how great it is that Jesus did that, but we come to think about the call upon each of our lives that Jesus gives us that if we want to be his disciples, that we take up the cross and follow him and so we, we gather together to celebrate and to think about and to live into this odd way of life that Christ invites us and calls us into. But much like that poor kid dribbling down the court, this morning I want us to reflect a bit on how odd that feels and how at times it even feels like we are not winning, we are losing coach. And how at times it even feels like the fans are going, what are you doing? This is not the way, right? And even at times when we decide this way is too hard and we go back to our old habits and even, oh, that feels good. And we made the basket and we feel like, oh, now the tide's turning finally. What Coach Dale in Hoosiers recognizes is it is not so important that we win this opening game as much as it is that those players learn a kind of game that will move them into the immeasurably more than all they could ever ask or imagine. I don't want to ruin the movie for you, but they win the state championship. (laughs) But that Jesus takes on this ragtag team of disciples who are shaped in so many ways like the world around them. And over and over again, he is trying to teach them the ways of the kingdom, teach them the ways of the cross. And he takes us, this ragtag group of 21st century disciples, and he is trying to teach us again and again the way of the kingdom, the way of the cross. And it feels so odd and foreign and challenging and difficult. But we are a people who are gathered here today to confess that it is the way of eternal life. (laughs) It is the way of ultimate coming of God's kingdom. So this morning, if you have the gospel text, I want to think a little bit about that. And then we're going to go to the epistle text that Brent read for us earlier out of Philippians. The gospel text this morning out of Luke 13 is part of what scholars call a travel narrative in Luke. Back towards the end of chapter nine of Luke, Luke narrates that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem and then for several chapters then he is traveling on his way to ultimately to Jerusalem to the crucifixion and resurrection. But along the way, various things happen. And so in the text this morning, the Pharisees come to him and say, you need to get out of here for Herod's trying to hunt you down and kill you. Now, by the way, um, scholars are quite divided on whether the Pharisees are acting out of pure motive here or impure motive. Some scholars think the Pharisees just want Jesus out of here and so they make up a story to get him to get out of here. Some scholars think Luke in particular of all the gospel writers kind of treats the Pharisees with the most dignity and the most graciousness. And so perhaps the Pharisees are deeply concerned and have heard a rumor that Herod, and by the way, this is, there's a bunch of Herods in the scripture. This is Herod Antipas. In the birth story, we see Herod the Great, but this is his son, Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded, who is the tetrarch of Galilee, who is mm, Jewish, but mostly interested in keeping power and keeping peace and perhaps worried about revolts. And so it very well may be that Herod, who's heard rumors perhaps that Jesus, this prophet is John the Baptist come back from the dead, causing the same kinds of trouble that John the Baptist was causing. Perhaps it is the case that Herod is out to kind of stomp out this movement before it gets really started. It could be, and I probably lean here, that it probably is genuine, but it probably is also self-concerned because perhaps the Pharisees are nervous that if Herod stomps out this problem that Jesus is creating, perhaps that will also impact them and that violence may carry over to the peaceableness that they have in their life. But they say to him, get out of here. Herod's going to kill you. His response is fascinating. Tell that old fox... But I'm not really worried about him. In fact, I, I got three days left. I'm, I'm delivering people from the demonic today and tomorrow, and then the third day I'll get out of here. I'll be finished. Most scholars think that what Jesus is referring to is probably both forward and backwards in the gospel, perhaps thinking forward to, or backwards, I guess, to the early part of the gospel where Mary and Joseph lose him for three days in Jerusalem. But on the third day, they find him in the temple in Jerusalem teaching, but certainly it's looking forward towards the crucifixion on the third day will rise again. In other words, I think this is Jesus's way of saying, well, I'm worried about that, but here's the deal. Evil does not get the last word, but good does, right? Darkness, even the darkness of Herod does not get the last word, light will get the last word, and Sin will not indeed get the last word, but grace will, and death won't get the last word, but, but life will. And so thanks for the warning, but I'm going to stick with my mission, if you will. But then the text moves as he moves towards Jerusalem to what many scholars call a, a city lament. In fact, I found it really fascinating. A couple of scholars put together... A whole list of texts in the scripture they call city laments, places where cities cry out and lament together about what's happening in their life and in their world. However, this one's kind of different than most of the others. The majority of the city laments are the city lamenting that God has seemingly left them. And so the city laments, oh, where did you go, God? Your glory has left us. We are in despair. Like all of the unique presence that used to be here is no longer here. And the city laments about the absence of God. But this is a city lament of Jesus about Jerusalem, but in reverse. The presence of God has indeed come to Jerusalem, but here's the problem. They have fled, not God has fled. And that powerful image, how I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How I've longed to protect you and to guide you and to form you, but but you have gone your own way. Several scholars point out that the image here is really powerful. Um, I'm not a a farmer, that's the truest thing I've said today. Actually, I couldn't help but think about this text this week, uh, a few weeks ago when, when Deb's dad passed away and we went to, to Missouri to visit her family in Buffalo, this little town of Buffalo, Missouri. Um, her Aunt Donna, her dad's sister, um, she and her husband have a little farm and they actually have... Um, they have chickens, and it's been fun as a family. Every once in a while, we go visit, especially when the kids were little, to watch them try to go into, watch these city kids try to go into the chicken house to get eggs. Um, I won't say which child, but it's our oldest, who's really afraid of chickens. Uh, although he's monitoring the the feed today online, he may have just shut things down there. I don't know, but anyway. But when we were there, I was just asking Donna, I said, hey, Donna, do you guys like get coyotes and foxes? She goes, oh yeah. She goes, every once in a while, I gotta go out here on the back patio. <laughs> and I just have, I would love to have a video of it, but I gotta shoot them foxes. And it was awesome. I just can't imagine uh, pistol packing Donna out there. Uh, but, but it's really from kind of Greek life and other places where we get um, kind of the idea that foxes are sort of sly or crafty Um, In fact, I think it's fascinating in 21st century kind of language, we think of foxes and kind of positive, somebody can be foxy, um, uh, not here, but you know, somewhere, somebody can be foxy, but, uh, and to be called a chicken is not necessarily a good thing, right? Um, But we got to kind of reverse that in our imagination here. The fox is a scoundrel for the Hebrew folks, folks who are, are uh, sojourners, folks who are sheep herders and chicken farmers. They, foxes are scoundrels that come in and rob and steal and, and they're not good at any kind of level. But it's beautiful this picture of the chicken that gathers her hens. In fact, we have accounts of like fires that will sweep through a barn and the mother hen will gather the chicks underneath her and be burnt and die in the fire. And when folks come back through, Underneath the body, the chicks will still be alive and protected by the hen. And that's really the the picture that Jesus has, how I've longed to to gather you, to teach you a different kind of way and to shape and to form you in this way. And, And I know I say this often, but it's very important that when we read this text, we recognize that this text is written just a few years and read just a few years after the actual destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by Titus and the emperor Vespasian. So that when Jesus says, I I longed to care for you and to heal you, but you went a different way and there's devastation and this house is no more. The first readers are saying, absolutely, that the people chose a way that led to their destruction. Jesus was trying to teach them another way, but they went this other direction and it didn't give them life. It actually fed into the very destruction that ultimately happened to the city. And so we see, if you will, this way of the fox and this way of the hen and the people have chosen, if you will, the way of the fox instead. And I know I say this also frequently, but it's very important for us to recognize the problem in the text is not that the people weren't religious. When Jesus got to Jerusalem, there was all kinds of religion going on. The problem was even in their religious practices, those religious practices reflected more the way of the fox than the self-giving way of the cross or the self-giving way of the hen trying to gather and heal. Are you with me? And so the very ways of the people led to this kind of destruction and Jesus laments, laments. That those who follow him and those he encounters in the Pharisees and in Jerusalem are more religious reflections of Herod than they are transformed reflections of him. If we can go to the epistle text for just a moment in Philippians chapter three, Philippians is a beautiful letter. In fact, one of maybe the most beautiful pieces of poetry in all of the scripture happens in Philippians chapter two. It's a hymn or poem that Paul gives us. The Greek word is the the word kenosis. It's a word that means empty. So we oftentimes call it the kenosis passage where Paul will say this, let the same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he had power, equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he kenosist, he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. And being found in human likeness, he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's because he embodied that way of the cross, that way of the hen, if you will, that self-giving love, it's because of that he was found in the very... Reflection of God in the very nature and character of God and therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name that the name of Jesus every knee on heaven and earth and under the earth should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of that character that we see in God the Father and Paul says that's the kind of mind right that Jesus was trying to give us that mind that canonic self emptying mind and then Paul can kind of hint that he already has it and now if you'll go to the text for this morning, in Philippians 3, I believe it's verse 17, Paul says something that I could never get away with. He says, hey, so if you want to figure this out, why don't you be like me and imitate me? The reason I could never get away with that is because if I said on some Sunday morning, here's what we need to do this week, you all need to become like me. My wife would go, right? Like that's just not. But Paul can somehow say, imitate me. Now, by the way, that's not outlandish in the first century. For the way people learned things was not by YouTube videos or Googling it. Or even taking classes, they learned through apprenticeship, through discipleship. And so in the same way Jesus embodied the way of the cross and kept drawing his disciples to take up their cross and learn this way, Paul can say, and now learn that way from me. As I write to you from prison, as I suffer for the sake of the gospel, as I try to embody by the power of the spirit at work within me, this canonic life that Jesus gave to us. And then Paul can say, It kind of breaks my heart that there are so many people who still live as enemies of the cross. I think you should underline that line. Again, by the way, when Paul writes that, most New Testament scholars think he's not referring to those people out there, those enemies of the cross, those pagans all around us. But Paul is deeply concerned about the ways in which the Philippian church is being shaped by those who come in the name of Christ, but teach a very different gospel. A gospel that's more about how our stomachs get filled, about how we receive all kinds of blessings. And Paul says that kind of life that leads ultimately to the goal being that kind of security is actually a God that's in our stomach, a God that we have made and not the God who keeps inviting us to learn the ways of self-giving love in the world. And he can even say those religious folk who wear the symbol around their neck but are still enemies of the cross. And then he uses a word, I know it's really nerdy to teach you a Greek word, but I like this one. In the verse, if you have it still open, let me go to it, Philippians 3. This is verse 20. Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven. The Greek word there that we translate citizenship is this word, politeuma. Politeuma, And the reason I found it fascinating is it only occurs one time in the entire scripture and it occurs right here. That Paul is saying, listen, our politeuma is, is from heaven. But the word that we oftentimes translate citizenship is kind of difficult to translate because it's related to the word polis, which is a Greek word that means city or community. And so it's the same word from which we get words like politics. And so it has to do with not just that we have, <laughs> we have a passport from heaven and we live as strangers in this world where we don't really belong which sometimes citizenship can imply. But the word actually seems to mean we're part of a different team, if you will, a part of a different community. We are part of a people who are being shaped in heavenly kinds of ways. And that's what makes us so odd in the world today. Because the formation that we have, the community that we are part of, the ways that we are living our lives together are so foreign to the way that the world lives their lives together. And our citizenship is from there, but the good news is, by the way, not that we will go there, but that our Savior will come from there to here. And this way that we have been learning will be revealed as the way in which the new creation will ultimately come and be shaped and formed. And so Paul says, listen, follow me, learn this life, don't be enemies of the cross, but be shaped by this cruciformed way of living. As I've reflected on that this week, again, I'm reminded of how difficult this is. If I can give the Pharisees a break and even Jerusalem a break. Jerusalem in the first century and the Pharisees in the first century were really, really and rightly worried about the threat of violence. In fact, that violence comes to fruition in AD 70. Worried that their very way of existence would constantly be under threat even in the first centuries, they were deeply worried about what I would call today kind of culture war issues. Terrified um, about the ways that the culture around them to use Paul's language again, was squeezing them into its mold. Worried that they were losing their particularity in particular, very worried they were losing their children. As I say so often, in the first century, folks worried that they would wake up one day and their children would no longer be the unique people of God living in Rome. They would just be Romans. They'd just be Babylonians. So, I mean, we gotta fight that, right? We gotta push against those forces. There are people terrified about the future of their institutions that mean so much to them, including the temple worried that all of these things that have shaped and formed their people for generations are going away, are living under threat. Is there any future for those things? And here's the reality. A a people who are shaped by the fears of their future, both personally, culturally, institutionally, People who are shaped largely by those fears tend then not to stop being religious, but tend to live into a religion that looks much more like the practice of the fox than like the self-giving love of the hen. Are you with me? In fact, it shouldn't surprise us then... That the prophets who keep coming back and trying to draw those people shaped so much by their fears back to the heart of God, that that it would be easier to get rid of them than it would be to live that kind of life. Or it shouldn't surprise us that in Jesus' case, a Pharisee could stand up and say, it may be better for us institutionally to let one guy die than to let the institution fall apart. And the reason I want to give the Pharisees a break today is I kind of want to give us a break today too. It dawned on me this week, it may not have dawned on you, it was two years ago this Sunday that we went into quarantine. I was reflecting on that. Two years ago this Sunday we were panicking between you and me. And we were getting information out. We're not meeting together. We had no idea how to do this. So thanks be to God for Caleb Gerdes and Brandt Center. And we ran over there and for several weeks, we broadcast from the Brandt Center all the way through Easter. We just thought this will be a few weeks and then everything will be back to normal. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so so first of all, I I wanna say thank you. As I've reflected on those two years, shaped by fears, uncertainty, shaped by disruption, it's in those moments that our character gets revealed. And we didn't do it perfectly, but I'm still standing upright, thank you. I do think for the most part, that cruciformed life in us, that care for each other, got exhibited in ways that even as we walked through uncertainty together, we tried to figure out how to do that in ways that gave life to each other rather than division and death. And I truly wanna say thank you to this group because I have a lot of colleagues and friends in ministry for whom they couldn't stand up here and say, say that in front of their group for, there was a lot of foxiness, if you will, that got revealed in the last two years. But I do recognize in this moment, how difficult if you're listening well, the sermon is today. For we're rightly shaped this morning by unbelievable fears of violence and threat. And it feels like we're on a court and the coach has said, pass the ball four times. And we say, but the other team is winning. and the fans are growing restless. And between you and me, coach, I think you've lost your mind. I'm just gonna shoot. And in a time of incredible cultural pressure that we describe as culture warring, I understand the fears of the ways we're being pushed and shaped and molded, and especially our children and grandchildren being pushed and shaped and molded by culture. And, and I share fears about the institutions that are, have been most important and sacred in my life and what their future and destiny is. But we gather as a people this morning, bringing all of those fears and concerns Nervous that there's a number of foxes out to get us. But our coach keeps inviting us to embody the way of the cross. <laughs> to allow him to gather us under his wings, to allow us to be shaped and formed by his heart, to be a people who who even when we're not sure the coach has lost it, we trust that this way that we have been called to is the way of the kingdom, it is the way of the new creation, it is the way that ultimately means that death doesn't get the last word and darkness and evil and sin don't get the last word. This way that we've been called to indeed is the eternal way of truth. And so we come again and again to be loved by him, to be shaped by him, to be called by him, and to take up our cross and to follow him. Almighty God, we come this morning, people like our brothers and sisters, the Pharisees, Shaped by all sorts of fears um, and not made up ones I mean fears Herod beheaded John the Baptist what will he do to us? Feeling often like this life that you have called us to is a life that is just setting us up to lose it is not the life That comes naturally. It is not the life that we have learned in a thousand different ways, but it is the life that you keep inviting us back to, transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so I I thank you this morning for some saints in this room who, like Paul, have become models for us about how to, to live in difficult circumstances and still reflect the life of the cross. May we all become that, teach us, form us, shape us, empower us. God, I really do thank you for the way you've sustained us over these last two years of disruption. It doesn't mean that there haven't been deep heartbreaks, there have been doesn't mean we haven't experienced significant loss. We have. It doesn't mean we always got along. We didn't. But I do believe the beauty of the future you have for us is dependent upon how deeply we learn the way of the cross with each other. And so thank you for the ways that you have shaped and are shaping us to be that in the world. I know that we have concerns about the direction the world is going around us. We have concerns about the future of institutions that matter deeply to us. Remind us again and again, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's all sorts of places we could run to for security, but we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. May your way in the world be the solid rock upon which we stand. I pray for maybe one or two who are here today or some online who feel far from that kind of life May what they hear from the text this morning be how deeply you want to gather them and teach them your way and love them and embrace them and form them to be reflections of who you are. So may they open their life to that this morning. And may your grace and mercy and love begin the work of transformation in their lives. Make us reflections of the one in whose name we pray today. Make us reflections of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Let's stand together.
1: Let's celebrate today our living hope in Jesus.
0: to hear your voices in this room. So just our voices. If you know this uh, great verse, to this hymn, join with me. And when I think that God his son not spare me, sent him to die, I scarce can take it, that on the cross, that on the cross my Thank mm-hmm. said, amen. amen. Well, just a reminder, next week um, at 6 o'clock, would love uh, for you to gather with us. Uh, there's so much good that God has done in our life together this last year, and I'm just excited to have a party and celebrate a lot of those good things with you, and so we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. But if you've listened well this morning, as we are sent into the world We're sent into places of challenge and darkness, places that cause our our fears to creep in, Um, places that this life that we're called to suddenly all of a sudden feel strange and not the way this should be done. And maybe we're losing. And when those fears come, I pray that you will hear the voice of the coach and not the voice of the fans in the stands saying, hey, pass the ball four times. (laughs) Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to find your life, you'll lose your life for my sake. Blessed are peacemakers. (laughs) Blessed are the pure in heart. And when we are tempted to kind of follow folks who look a lot more like a fox than a chicken, or when we're tempted to give up the ways that we are called to, may may the voice of the coach and the spirit within us spur us on to be what he has called us to be. And when we do that, we just call that the sanctified life. So may the God of peace himself may sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, and our bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called this ragtag group of players his church, he is faithful. And he will finish his work in us. And God's people said, amen, go in his peace.